0: you are carrying a story that is always looking for a place to be said and a place to be spoken. Mm-hmm. And that is because we are so quick to jump in, right? Like there's, there's just no... When we start allowing people to tell the truth about their own experience without fixing it, correcting it, hijacking it, telling them it's not that bad, well, then maybe we start building the world that we want. Where all of our losses are heard and respected and given the airtime and the support that they deserve. And then we don't have to look for any possible opportunity to tell the story.
1: Does she care that I doubt? Does she care?
2: Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we are back. It's 2023. I know you guys have waited patiently for a while for new content, uh, but as I mentioned in kind of the uh, the teaser episode, I um, wanted to be able to provide more content more frequently and in a way that uh, didn't absolutely overload me. So, Hopefully you guys like this new format and the shorter episodes that are cut into two parts. Um, so I'm not cheating anybody of any content. I believe me, I, I promise um, just cutting into two parts uh, a little more digestible. So hopefully you guys like that. You know, if you, if you love it, if you hate it, let me know. Uh, you can contact me through the website, www.thedeconstructionist.com. Uh, there you can find all of our stuff. So social media, uh, you can find our web store. So if you want a pint glass or a t-shirt or a coffee mug, uh, if you want to support us on Patreon, uh, you can do so there. We have a blog, uh, some stuff for you to read uh, on there. And uh, you can also stream our back cat- our entire back catalog of episodes, uh, over 150-something now, I think. Um, I should probably know this. I'm the one who edits these podcasts. so. But anyway, um, welcome back. and And so... want to take some time here to talk a little bit about what is upcoming. So um, kind of formatting it in this weekly release and in in two parts um, is going to allow me to do some some really cool series uh, this this year and this season in particular. And so uh, for the next uh, 20 weeks or so, I believe, uh, you will get a brand new episode every week. Uh, So to start it off um, somewhat selfishly, um, you know, If you've been following the podcast for a while, you know that uh, I dealt with um, some parents with uh, some pretty serious health issues at the end of last year. And unfortunately, uh, we lost my mom in August uh, to cancer. And so uh, somewhat selfishly wanted to talk about grief and grieving because uh, to be quite honest, um, anybody uh, who's listening out there who has been through... Um, the, the loss of a loved one, or has supported someone who has lost a loved one, knows that we as a society don 't do a great job of supporting one another and knowing you know how to how to support one another, how to grieve properly, how to um, give yourself that space and that time and that permission uh, to grieve and so I wanted to get some people on who um, are better at this or more um, professionally equipped to talk about this topic than I am. And so uh, who better than to get the author of my personal favorite book on the subject? Uh, It's uh, Megan Devine. Megan Devine, if you don't know her, um, wrote the book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. Um, She is a psychotherapist who um went through her own traumatic experience where she lost lost her partner uh in an accident uh, and he passed away right in front of her and and that obviously is is absolutely horrible and and traumatic and uh she was looking for resources, even as a therapist, and there just wasn't a lot of good content out there, a lot of helpful uh, resources out there. and so she wrote this book, and uh by far and away, my favorite book on the topic because doesn't really pull any punches, but not in the sense that it's uh, insensitive, Uh, but in the sense that it it says, you know, it kind of speaks to the reality of the situation. Like, yes, this sucks and there's not a whole lot we can do about it. And there's nothing really anyone can say or do that's going to bring that person back and the realities of it. But how do we put one foot in front of the other? How do we get to tomorrow? How do we get through the next day um, with this giant void in our life? Uh, That now exists. And so uh, it's a wonderful book. Um, Got all of her links in the show notes, uh, including her website, refugeandgrief.com. She's also got her own podcast. But uh, again, psychotherapist, author, speaker, uh, podcaster, extraordinaire, um, amazing guest. Had a wonderful time with her. Um, Highly recommend her book if you don't have it. Um, even if you've never personally been touched by grief, it's just a really great resource in knowing how to better help our loved ones out there um, who, who may be going through it. So check it out. Um, other than that, uh, buckle up because you're about to get a whole lot of content starting right now. So without further ado, I give you Megan freaking Divine. His
1: face must look like yours.
2: All right. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm very, very excited this week to welcome Megan Devine to the podcast to talk about her amazing book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. Welcome.
0: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. So I was just telling you before we started recording, um, your book, it just kept popping up in my life in different ways. And I I always take that as a sign that I need to look into this. And so my dad, uh, who also does counseling, on the side, uh, highly recommends this book to anyone who will, who, who needs it, you know, and, uh, and it kept popping up in his own grief class where other people would mention, yeah, I read this book. And then when asked, what book did you read? It's your book. And so this has really become the popular go-to book. Um, and, and we'll talk a lot about why that is, but you really, uh, approach grief head on in a way and, and address the issue with, uh, largely the way that society kind of Uh, tries to help, I guess, um, those who are going through the grieving process um, and and kind of falls short, we'll say.
3: Falls
0: short, I think, is being polite (laughs) about it. Very Midwestern (laughs) about it.
2: (laughs) Terrible. They suck at it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yes, let's just call it what it is. Yeah, I think um, when I wrote It's Okay That You're Not Okay, there was nothing out there um, in the book world that really told the truth about what it's like to be a grieving person in this day and age at this time. Um, Which isn't to say that there wasn't good writing out there. It just, it, it wasn't easily findable. There wasn't a place that really addressed it. There was a lot of rose colored glasses work out there. And there still is around like, you know, everything will be okay. You know, just get through the memorial and then lean on your memories. And like, that is not practical. It's not actionable and it's not real. And and I, I wrote the resource that I wanted for myself to be able to tell the truth about grief.
2: Yeah, and and beautifully done. Um, there's so many quotes, <laughs> quotable moments in this book that uh, I find myself just highlighting and highlighting and highlighting. After a while, I'm like, I'm going to run out a highlighter. A and exactly. B. Exactly. Like, the entire book is
1: highlighted. Book.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I had to calm down a little bit by about like the third chapter. So, but one of the things you said at the beginning of the book that I love is there's this quote where you say, what we all share in common, the real reason for this book is the desire to love better. And I think that's I think that's so right. I think although the people around us suck, you know at at uh, supporting us in in grief, I think there is a, a well-meaning intention behind it. I, I just think that we're poorly equipped and we've just kind of been raised in this culture that that's kind of the way you do it. You throw some empty platitudes at them, and you try to identify with them, and none of those things are helpful at all. And we all know this, and yet we still do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And here's the thing. Uh, The complaints that I get about my work and the book are are dwarfed by the good things, but the complaints that I get are, you got to cut your supporters some slack. They're doing the best they can. They have the best of intentions, and you need to hear the intention underneath their actions and their words. And I I call bullshit on that, (laughs) right? It is a normal human impulse to want to support and take care of the people we care about. That is a beautiful impulse. But as you just said, the ways that we have been taught to act on that impulse are wrong. And they are not delivering the love and care and support that we most want to give. The only way we get better at actually delivering... Our loving and our, our loving, caring intention. The only way we get better at that is hearing that what we're doing isn't working. Right. Mm. If you really want to be supportive to your partner, your mom, your friend, the wider world, then we have to be willing to feel a little bit of discomfort when somebody says, Hey, that doesn't help. Right? This is true not only in grief, but in any kind of systemic change, right? Like You know, you and I are two white folks sitting down and having a conversation. We need to be willing to be uncomfortable when we hear people of color say, this actually is very uncomfortable. This feels whatever, right? Like we don't need to take a whole detour into that. But what we're talking about here, what you and I are talking about, doesn't just belong to grief. This is about human connection, human relatedness, and relationship. And how do we make what is in our hearts actually be received by the people around us in the way that we most long for. It really is about how do we listen and how do we love each other better and acknowledging that the ideas that we've inherited decades and decades and millennia, the ideas that we've inherited about how we deal with pain don't work. And we, we have to be willing to experiment with other things and find new ways to, um, to show up and care because I I do believe that most people really do have good intentions and beautiful intentions. I feel like my work is mostly, let me help you learn the skills that you need so that you can deliver the love you intend.
2: Yeah, that's, and and I think the book is, is equally as important to those who haven't necessarily gone through grief personally um, so that they can better be better equipped, as you said, to um, to be there in a, in a, positive way for those who are going through grief. And you even mentioned in the book, you said, you know, you may be on the outside looking in at some point, but at some point it could happen to you. You know, it's going to happen to you. Everyone dies eventually. Um, And so you, you, you know, I think the book is, is equally as important for those who haven't yet been touched by death yet.
0: Yeah. I think, I think it's a really helpful book to read if you're a human being who cares about other human beings. And, Again, like, yes, the book focuses largely on death, right, from the griever's perspective and from the the helper's perspective. The tools that you learn in the book are tools for life, right? They're tools mm-hmm. for somebody having a really crappy day. They're tools for somebody getting sick and needing to know that you're there for them. Um, there is so much difficult stuff in in human life, and learning how to talk about that in ways that help the person experiencing it feel heard and supported, and help the supporters feel like they're doing amazing work, being amazing friends. So, yeah, I think I think it's a book for everybody. Even though it talks very specifically about um, like out of order deaths and like traumatic experiences and all of these things, it's just like the the mechanics underneath the whole book, though, are really for everybody wanting to feel heard and supported no matter what is happening in their lives.
3: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify?
2: Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, talk a little bit about you. You talk about the reality of grief and the power of acknowledgement, uh, in the sense that I don't need you to fix it because you can't. So just tell me that you see it and you're here for me, and you know why empty platitudes just are are worthless. Like I, I just want you. I think most people just want the acknowledgement, right? Like just yeah. see me where I'm at and just give me a hug and sit next to me and let me feel yeah, there's- it.
0: I feel like we don't think that's enough, so we skip over it, right? Like, when somebody says they're experiencing something difficult, we jump right in with, at least you have your memories, or um, at least the sun is shining, or aren't you glad you got to do this before they died? Like, we gloss over the statement of pain, and so... Grieving people, and remember that when I say grieving people here, it's not just grief related to death, although that's obviously in there, but if you identify as going through something difficult, we are talking about you. Like The thing that we need at that moment is for somebody to say, yeah, I see that. Yeah, that's that sounds really difficult. If you feel like you need to do more than that as a supporter, then ask. Like, not is there anything i can do because that puts the burden on the person who's already having a hard time but to say like do you um do you want to just be able to talk about that or do you feel like you want to problem solve around it like do you want empathy or do you want a solution right there is so much power in the simple act of acknowledging what somebody just said um i'm in the middle of a you know as as we're recording now i'm in the middle of a 6 month training intensive with clinicians, and one of the ongoing homework assignments that we do in that training is, I call it pain spotting, right, where you are listening out in the world just like politely eavesdropping for (laughs) statements of pain, right? The barista, when, you know, the person in line in front of you asked the barista how they're doing, they're like, not that great. Like the dog was up all night cause they were sick. And then I was late getting in and that sort of set off the whole morning. And then I dropped a pot of hot milk on my foot. And what do we normally say in response? Well, you know, at least it's not raining anymore.
2: <laughs> right? right. Yeah. So
0: the, yeah. the exercise there is like starting to listen to it and starting to recognize that you can play with your responses to that right? Like a great response to the barista having a bad day is like, that sounds really difficult for this early on a Monday morning. Yeah. And just see what happens, right? We think that acknowledging the truth of somebody's experiment is too small to be helpful, but honestly, it is incredibly powerful. And I really encourage people to start experimenting with that Like what happens when you allow what is true for somebody to be true for somebody without trying to change it or fix it for them? Run the experiment, be a good scientist, like be (laughs) curious about the world. What happens when you acknowledge the truth of a situation without trying to change it for somebody?
2: It's pretty cool. Yeah. What's interesting about that too, though, is, um, I I've noticed it myself too, like this, this, um instinct to kind of try to identify with them through experiences mm. of my own, which, you know, over time realized not, not helpful, you know, no. everybody's experience is very, very different. And so in instances where I've tried to just stop a- and say, you know what, I'm really sorry, that's awful. Um, it, it's interesting because the reaction is, is strange too. In the in the sense that the person that I say that to doesn't even know what to do with that, you know? Yeah they're just yeah. kind of like, uh, it's okay. You know? And like, they yeah. don't. we're so conditioned I mean, on both ends.
0: We are totally conditioned on both ends. I mean, the entire experience of being human is awkward from start to finish. So like, yes. <laughs> don't try to remove the awkwardness from your life because it's not going to happen. Right. I think a couple of things are happening in that scenario that ju- you just described. One, we are so accustomed to people hijacking, talking about themselves or cheering us up or changing the subject or telling us it's not that bad, that when somebody doesn't do that, we're like, wait a second. I don't, huh? What'd you just do there? Right. It's, it like, it jars us out of the expected cadence. Right. So that's one thing. The other thing is, I I think you're right. Like we do have these expected Expected things, and if we don't expect to be acknowledged in the truth of what we just shared, if if we expect to have to defend ourselves, it's like we don't. We just change the play. So I don't know what's going in there. The other thing, one of the things you mentioned in there was like the person in your example start saying, "No, it's okay. Like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about me." That is also like a conditioned response. Yeah, like oh, you were just actually human to me. Sorry, didn't didn't mean to make you do that. So sorry, right? Like <laughs> yeah. that's a very Canadian, mis- midwestern, <laughs> polite yeah. response thing to do. Um, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to make you feel something. My bad, right? Yeah,
2: or burden you, you know? with Yeah, my I didn't mean
0: to burden you, right? <laughs> like so. It, I mean, the thing is, like, I go back to awkwardness, right? As as the root of all things, um, it's okay to to have those awkward. Moments. It's okay as somebody who's going through a challenging time, whether it's you know a challenging morning or a cha- challenging decade, like whatever. Um, I don't expect us to suddenly know what to do with appropriate support. That's that's a work in progress too. That's also. Learning. I do want to. I do want to jump onto what you said about like I, I. used to try to empathize by sharing my story. So, this is something that we have been taught over and over again, and and I think people are really surprised to learn that it it doesn't get received as helpful. So, um, you know, if we're I'm going to use my coffee shop again. Like if we're if we're hanging out at the coffee shop, we're staying in line together, and, you know, I know somebody casually because we see each other there every morning. And they ask me how I'm doing, and I say, you know, not that great. My cat is 22 years old, and he was up all night because he's dying. They're like, oh, that happened to me. I remember when my cat died. You know, it was like this. So what they think they're doing is connecting with me. They think they're empathizing. They think they're letting me know that I'm not alone. But from my side of things as the receiver, as the one currently going through this and answering your question as to how I'm doing, oh, we're talking about you now. We're no longer mm-hmm. talking about me. Now we're talking about you, right? So it, it sort of has the opposite effect. It doesn't help me feel connected to you. It it makes me very often feel like what I am currently dealing with is no longer like you don't actually want to support me in this. You don't want to hear about what this is like for me. You're not actually here for me. You're here for you. And one of the reasons, and I get into this in the book, but one of the reasons we do that um, I call that grief hijacking, right? Like hijacking somebody's story with your own story, even with good intentions. We think we're doing that to connect, but it it does have the opposite effect. And one of the complaints that I get when I talk about that, like don't hijack somebody else's story. Uh, Some people are always like, no, I love hearing that other people have gone through this. Consent in all things is the thing to remember here. Consent Mm. In all things is the thing to remember. We'll go back to my hypothetical example of standing in line at the coffee shop and somebody asks me how I'm doing, and I say the cat is dying. A great, highly skilled response, awesome response would be, I'm so sorry that's happening. That's a lot to go through. I have walked through this before and I know some resources locally. If there's any like help you might like, I'm happy to share that with you. And then, you know, what I just did there was. I didn't jump in with my advice. I didn't jump in with my story. I told them I've I have gone through this experience before. It wasn't the same as yours. I don't pretend to like know what you're going through. There are some logistical things that I'm happy to help you with or answer questions for you if you might find that useful. Right? Consent in all things. Sometimes it's wonderful to have somebody who has gone through a similar experience that you're going through. Sometimes that is wonderful there. You know, I, for the last nine years, I've been running a, a course called writing your grief 10 times a year for the last nine years. That's a lot of people. And what's amazing about watching that many people interact with each other, learn from each other, connect with each other, that there is something beautiful and useful in connecting with people who have experienced the same level of devastating loss as you have the same level, but not the same loss. And one of the things that's really magical about communities like that is that everybody recognizes that they are sharing something together as a community, but their own individual experience is unique and everybody respects that. So nobody tries to conflate things and be like my, you know, I lost a child and you lost a child. So it's exactly like this. It's more like, Mm. ah, I see that you have visited a similar level of hell Mm. that I find myself in. And we live in very different rooms and things look very different on the inside of these rooms, but I can see that you have been brought here as well, right? There are ways to connect with people and see each other that are kind and well-boundaried and skilled And you only get those things if you interrupt your impulse to make things better or share your own story without getting permission first, all of that stuff. And I think the biggest thing um, for me in, in so much, something that sort of underlies a lot of it's okay that you're not okay, is like slow down. As a person experiencing something really difficult, slow down. Slow down and ask yourself what you need. If there are tangible, actionable things that you can use from your support people, like let's find a way to ask for those things especially slow down as a supporter because we've been so deeply trained to make things better in so many ways that don't work. And again, like you can slow down that impulse to care for people and then really put some thought into what is the most helpful action? What is actually called for in this situation? And can I do that?
2: Right. Uh, I love that approach because it starts out with an acknowledgement, but then it ends with options, meaning that the person who's going through the grief can either just say, thank you, you know, thank you, and then that's it. Or they can say, oh, then, you know, give you permission to tell your story and say, oh, tell me about how you went through this. So they... You're not just forcing your story onto them. Yeah, that you're not
0: just forcing your story onto them. So you avoid the whole grief hijacking thing. You avoid the, oh, now we're talking about you. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. Um, I was thinking, I lost my train of thought earlier when we were talking about this. Like, I think one of the big reasons we are so quick to jump in with our own story is because there are so few times in daily life where we get to tell the truth about what we experienced, right? So like if you're talking about I'm going to keep going with this one because it's it's what's happening in my household today, but like end of life for a very elderly pet, right? Mm. That is an undervalued, underrespected loss in this culture, right? So not not in my circle because in my circle I could talk about it all day long, but like for a lot of people they're carrying a grief experience. That because no one was available to listen or people were like, no big deal, it's just an animal, or like, you know, buck up and think about the good times, they had a really long like, whatever. Like, if they feel like they could never say that, then there is a story always waiting in the wings. There is a story always waiting for an opportunity to get some airtime. So it's like if I ask, if, you know, if somebody asks me in line at the coffee shop, you know, really beating this metaphor here, but like if somebody asks (laughs) me in line at the coffee shop how my day is going and I say not that great, the cat's dying, it's like something, a door gets unlocked for them. Like, oh, we're talking about grief now, I get to tell this story. We think we're being supportive and empathetic and, and, and all of those things, and I'm not saying that we're not, but there's also like you are carrying a story that is always looking for a place to be said and a place to be spoken. Mm -hmm. And that is because we are so quick to jump in, right? Like there's, there's just no, when we start allowing people to tell the truth about their own experience without fixing it, correcting it, hijacking it, telling them it's not that bad. Well then maybe we start building the world that we want where all of our losses are heard and respected and given the airtime and the support that they deserve. And then we don't have to look for any possible opportunity to tell the story.
2: Yeah, I do. I do feel it, it, in, in my experience at, off air, I, I think I told you, um, You know, I I unfortunately went through the loss of of a parent this the end of this last year um, late into 2022 um, You know found out my mom had uh, ovarian cancer and it was very very quick Uh, Went into surgery the next month and came home uh, For about a week Uh, I was lucky enough to go up and and cook for her for, for that week and brought my daughter with me And we got to spend time with her not knowing that would be the last time I'd talk to her and uh, and then we quickly, due to complications of the cancer and the surgery, lost her right after that. Um, and it was it was bizarre just in and of itself because it fe- felt surreal. But in terms of like interacting with people around me, I found that the younger people were the ones who kind of did a better job uh, in just saying the best thing I heard was like, "Hey, I'm so sorry. Like, just let me know if there's anything you need." And in that moment, I, I had no idea what I needed. Sure. I, I could barely understand what was happening, much less know what I needed, you know. Um, it was the older folks who were throwing the empty platitudes at me, like, oh, well, now she's with God, and um, at least you had her for 43 years, and I'm like, yeah, but I wanted her for longer, you know. My daughter got robbed of time with her grandmother, you know. Like, that sucks, and that's unfair, and it pisses me off, you know, like, um But it was the older folks who we look to as the kind of older, wiser generation that were really like not helpful. And it was the younger folks who seem, maybe they read your book, I don't know, but they seemed a little more equipped to handle it in a a good way uh, that left me feeling like, okay, that was a good interaction in this moment where I'm just reeling, you know?
0: Yeah. So first, thank you for sharing that with me. And you're right. You got robbed and your mom got robbed and your kid got robbed, right? Mm -hmm. It's... It's bullshit. Yeah. And it's a really interesting observation about older generations. And I think we can look, if you're ready, to move on Mm. to that. You ready? Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, All right. Hey, consent in all things, Mm. right? Consent in all (laughs) things. We want to make sure that the person is with us before we move on to a different subject. So, um, really interesting about older generations so if you look generationally at what let's say folks um, baby boomers right Mm -hmm. the boomers and i want to take this moment to remind everybody that baby boomers were born after the second world war so like 45 to 50 you know because i think as a as a gen x person i'm like i am not a boomer (laughs) i am not
2: Same. Um, Anyway. I'm not a millennial either.
0: I feel like I got to represent for the Gen Xers, man. Anywho, um, (laughs) (laughs) that that boomer generation comes from a time of keep calm and carry on. Don't air Mm -hmm. your dirty laundry. Don't um, talk about what is going on for you. This is also a very, very deeply ingrained time of children should be seen and not heard. Um, I saw this morning when I was doing stuff that I really didn't need to be doing, but there was you know an admin spiral going on in my life, I was looking at some uh, YouTube comments for, for some of the videos on my YouTube channel, and somebody had a comment of like, get better, not bitter. Nobody wants to see you sad. Suck up and get over it. And I was like, let me guess. Are you over wow. 60? Like, yeah. obviously, I didn't respond because that's not worth the time. But like, that mentality, that approach of suck it up, move on don't show anybody any of this you do not talk about this just muscle through that is a product of a very specific generational time right you look at um you know each generation changes and improves the situation of the previous generation i'm not talking financially because we know that's not going well these days but i'm talking <laughs> sure. about like you know the the women's movement of the 60s and the 70s right was in reaction to but also built on the work of women in the workplace in the in the 40s and 50s right like we we build on what earlier generations have created for us and i promise i'm bringing this one back but like the <laughs> the millennials and our younger generations i do think that they are Better, not good. I think that they are better at emotional, relational things because the generations before them started breaking down those barriers. Like my generation, I grew up at a time when we were just starting to talk openly about child sexual abuse and um, violence against women. That stuff was all behind closed doors before. And it was one of those things that you don't share, you don't talk about. There were no news stories about it. There was nothing going on. And I'm not saying by any stretch that Gen X solved the problem of violence against women because clearly we did Mm. not. But what we have now and what the younger generations the generations after Gen X came into was an environment where we talk about this stuff. They came into an environment where this seems really stupid now, but like, they came into an environment where we know that abuse and violence is wrong. And that was not the environment that my mom grew up in. Right. Yeah. So, all of this coming back to I agree with you. I think that a lot of our older generations, a lot of their belief systems are rooted in that um, emotions are the enemy. And in order to survive, you must shut down all emotion right i mean this is a really interesting exploration that we won't go into today about like how parents try to protect their children from harm by damaging them first so i mean there's a whole thing but this whole idea of like the way that i survived this family system and this culture is to not show any emotion
2: right oh, so unhealthy
0: it's so unhealthy and back then it was survival right mm-hmm. if you are a little kid in the 50s and you are feeling and you are experiencing and expressing emotions, in that culture, you're going to get your ass kicked. Mm, mm -hmm. Right? There are abusive lived realities for being a feeling human being. And what you learn is button up, keep it quiet, don't say anything, don't rock the boat, right?
1: Mm.
4: And
0: you grow up with that, and then that is what you believe is proper. And so you get these young upstarts. Now, who are like feeling things and talking about it and saying, no, this is wrong and this is right and we protect this and we advocate for this and they're like, wait a second, now you're making my entire understanding of the safety of the world, calling that into question. So, all of that really cool cultural, sociological, anthropological explorations was freaking fascinating. I love them. And what that means on the ground for people going through a hard time is just what you experienced. You've got a lot of people, especially in older generations, who want to talk you out of your pain very quickly because that is what mm-hmm. they have learned. You've got a lot of people who want to be helpful and supportive and they are um, a bit more emotionally literate or emotionally experienced because of the the cultural soup that they're growing up in and what they know is possible and expected. You do still have a lot of people who, no matter what Age range they're in, no matter what generation they're in, we still have so much cultural messaging that says the best thing you can do for somebody going through a hard time is to help them stop feeling so bad. The clothing we put on that gesture differs from generation to generation, but the messaging is the same. Right. So you might find somebody in their 70s basically giving you like, at least they're with God now, buck up little camper, your mom wouldn't want you to be sad, like they lived along, like the, the platitudes that have been around for a while. You might have a younger person saying, yeah, life is really hard for so many people and we really should just be seeding love everywhere we go. Now that sounds prettier, but it's the same message. Hmm. So the clothing that we put on, our impulse to make things better, does change generationally. But the impulse to take somebody's pain away from them instead of help them withstand it, that is a bedrock that needs updating.
2: Mm. Could not agree more. Um, One of the things you talk about at the beginning of the book that... I I thought was so poignant, um, was you talk about one of the main issues being that we don't talk about grief in the right way, uh, in the sense that we see it as a detour to our normal happy life. Like that's the default, you know? Yeah. And, And it couldn't, I couldn't help but think of the fact that like this feels like a very Western mentality. Uh, even when I remember, um, first time I got to travel internationally and I was talking and I'm always interested to see how people perceive us from other parts of the world. And I remember one of the things that stuck with me, and this conversation probably happened 20 years ago. um, This guy I talked to said, you know, we always view people from the United States as being somewhat fake. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, anytime you walk up to somebody, they're like, how are you doing? Everybody's... I'm good. I'm great. Whatever. Hey, good, good. Not good, everybody's yeah, good. good or great. Like, you know, <laughs> your life somebody's life is falling apart, but yet we just kinda sugarcoat everything and we don't and plus on the receiving end, we don't really want to know that your life is falling apart because that makes us uncomfortable, you know? So like you better say you're good or you're great. Like that's the only acceptable response. So I, I couldn't help but think like this feels like a very Western mentality that our default should be joy and happiness and life is great.
0: Yeah. Yes. And (laughs) I think that Western culture has perfected falsity falsity. Mm. I don't even know if that's a word, but we're going to claim it It is now. I think, I think that, I think that Western culture has perfected it. I think it's tricky territory when we start romanticizing other cultures and saying that they know how to do this. I think Mm. that there is a spectrum of emotional intelligence and, um, death literacy, and grief literacy. There are absolutely cultures in the world that are more emotionally honest. Absolutely. There are absolutely cultures in this wide, small planet. There are definitely cultures that are more blunt about the fact that death and suffering, more blunt about the fact that death and suffering happen. For sure. That doesn't mean that they are skilled at dealing with it or responding to it. And I, I just I'm really, really wary of romanticizing and saying Western culture has it wrong and Eastern culture has it correct because that it's all a spectrum and there are issues mm-hmm. with all of it. Right. Um so a couple of examples here, I'm prefacing this by saying I'm not an expert in any of these cultures. That is a thing. Um in Japan, there is the um, the Jizo, right? Who is the, in Western culture, the language we would use is like the patron saint of babies and children. So you'll see Jizo sculptures and Jizo gardens where, um, uh, you know, it's for miscarriage and stillbirth and um, children and babies that die young, right? So there's a whole ceremony and there's a whole ritual around it. And it's amazing. And we could really use some... Ritual and ceremony and acknowledgement around those specific losses in Western culture. Absolutely. Because those are still secret. That is further along the spectrum of awesome than we might be in Western culture, but it still doesn't mean that in Japanese culture, it's okay to be sad. It still doesn't mean that if your baby died four years ago and you have photos of them up or you celebrate their birthday or whatever that like there isn't necessarily a cultural response that says that that's normal and healthy. There are a lot of Asian cultures and I don't know this from personal experience. I know this from listening to um, some of my writers and students who come from those cultures talking to me about it and saying like we can do the ceremony we can do the ritual and that is understood and accepted but it is not understood or accepted to talk about the impact moving forward i and i say all of this so cautiously gosh so cautiously but i just want us to be very mindful of not grass is greener not romanticizing and honestly not co-opting other cultures beliefs and practices and discarding the rest, right, which is, what, which is what we do with so many things that we decide um, they do it better. So let's take this. I think there is a lesson in there about the wide spectrum of different cultures, different generations' responses to the reality of human life and human existence and what things might we learn from that and where do we have room to improve and always broadening that lens out. Always widening the view you're taking in because it is tempting. It is easy to say, oh, this culture does this better, right? Like Mexican culture does death better. Um, You know, the Japanese do miscarriage better. The Italians do like whatever death, like, okay, well, widen your lens out and look at what's beyond the ceremony. What is the actual lived reality like for grieving people? In that culture. And it's not to fault find. It's not for that. I just... I just don't like the either or thing. And and we do it wrong and everybody else does it right. Because honestly, cranky as it sounds, we all do it wrong. We all do it wrong because it's... It is hard to watch people we care about be in pain. It's hard. And Mm -hmm. every culture has its way of erasing that pain. Right. I yeah, just, you, every culture needs a different, we, it's what we were talking about a minute ago with like, it's the foundation that needs to change.
2: Yeah. Right. You made, you made me think of a, a section in your book where I think it was one of the um, folks that participated in your, um, the, the grief in, in writing mm-hmm. um, mentions her experience with a, a Buddhist priest And how she went to the Buddhist priest for comfort. And it was this very avoidant kind of advice, you know, as uh, avoid the pain versus push into the pain. And so it just kind of made me think about the fact that like, yeah, of course, like it's, you know, the way in which we poorly kind of respond to grief is not exclusive to the US or even Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're all kind of at fault for doing it wrong, no matter where you live or what, you know, spirituality or non-spirituality that you practice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't put it into the book, but I had an experience very soon after my partner died. Um, a friend of mine was very involved in the African heritage museum in our, in our city. And she said, you know, I really want you to meet with this person. He, um, you know, he's an African chief, whatever, whatever, you know, I can't remember, um, you know, the, the rest of the ways that she described him, But, you know, this was probably 10 days after Matt drowned and I was like, I will take anything. And I went in and I met with him and he told me, didn't ask me, he told me that I was damaging Matt's spirit by being sad and that right in that very moment, he needed to, I needed to bring him to the site where Matt drowned And I needed to shave my head and I needed to throw my hair in the river and I needed to let him go. And I was damaging not only Matt in his spirit form, but also all of Matt's relations by not doing this. And I was like, thank you very much. And I left and he followed me down the street and yelled, stand up to your full height. Do not walk like a sad person. Walk like the powerful being you are. I was like, what the hell?
2: Unreal. (laughs) Oh my gosh.
0: Right? So, again, I'm not saying that this person was representative of even his own culture's culture, because who knows? I don't know what was going on there. But it is really tempting to romanticize other cultures, other times, other people's anything, right? And say they have Mm -hmm. it down. And I, I just, just be really careful with that stuff, because it is a very human thing to be distressed by the suffering of others, and there are very, very few cultures, people, practices who know that our job is not to remove suffering, but to bring support alongside suffering. And and I actually get really irritated with um, the commodification of Eastern traditions. I think I complain about this in the book, too, about <laughs> about Buddhism and mindfulness and those spiritual practices. It's like... Those spiritual practices from what I have learned and from what I have studied, like historical Buddha did not say, historical Buddha said, you know, nature of life is suffering, the nature of life is pain, human life is full of pain. He didn't then go on to say, so like, don't think about it. Just like, don't let it bug you. The whole, the whole creation of what became Buddhist thought was, wow, there is so much pain in this world and my temptation is to pretend it doesn't hurt, and I don't want to do that. I want to stay here and keep my eyes open and my heart open to the pain and the joy that is part of this world. How will I do that when everything in me wants to believe that this pain is not real? And so when you get watered-down mindfulness practices, error quotes on mindfulness here, when you get watered-down mindfulness practices or um, watered-down, co-opted, spiritual beliefs that say that the most enlightened thing you can do is to rise above your pain, I am mad because not only are you robbing yourself of the real magic and the real gift of a lot of those teachings, but what a diss to those teachings themselves. Like we have incredibly powerful tools that have been handed down generation after generation after generation from various parts of the world about how to keep your eyes open to pain and suffering and how to listen without erasing. And what do we do? We use those tools to gaslight and erase and rise above and basically castrate any attempt at connection.
1: Deconstructed these walls and I found out cross the feet